6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Okay, we're doing a study in the book of Jacob. Jacob's letter to the twelve tribes. James in your New Testament, for those of you looking for Jacob, it's James in the English. There was a, an, a cartoon in the New Yorker some time ago. It showed, the, the sketch was of a, a church, but it had a, a billboard. You know how they do advertising their particular features. And um, this church was advertising the following advantages to its particular style of worship. It's, it advertised that they um, have 24% fewer commitments they're the home of the 7.5% tithe. They advertise they only have 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, your choice. <laughs> we have just three spiritual laws, not four. Everything you've wanted in the church and less, right? <laughs> and of course, it was just a uh, a humorous insertion in the New Yorker. And yet, <laughs> the spirit of humor behind that is tragically, like all good humor, is always built around some germ of truth. It's interesting how in our society uh, the church has moved towards comfort rather than commitment. No quickening of the conscience, no feeding of the mind, no opening of the heart, no real commitment and James would argue no real faith. The letter to James, the letter of James, I mean, in the New Testament, is often presented as in contrast to Paul. And it's really not. One of the great debates among uh, uh, biblical scholars is the relationship between the epistle of James and the many epistles of Paul's. Paul's epistles really focus on the time prior to salvation. And James's focus is after salvation. The way we normally would start our study in James, say, how many of you are saved? Get a show of hands and then ask after everybody, how many of you are saved? How many of you are saved here in the office? Good, good. And the next question is, what have you done with it? See, part of the problem we have in the evangelical community, there's an attitude, an atmosphere that the whole thing is to get people to receive Jesus Christ. I'm not knocking that. Don't misunderstand, Don't misunderstand me. But we have these crusades and things and the ideas to get people to come down the sawdust trail and accept Jesus Christ. As if that's a climax. As if that's the goal. As if that's the, the peak. No, no, no. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of what it should be. In other words, that's where things start. Because that should begin a path of growth, a path of commitment, a path of bearing fruit. All you do there is to plant a seed. What Jesus is looking for is a seed that bears for, uh, a tree that bears forth fruit. Just a little bit of review. We are in an epistle I like to call Jacob. 
It's Jacobos in the Greek. It's Jacques in France. It's Iago in Italian, Diego in Spanish, or Yaakov in Hebrew. But strange enough, in English, it's James. And it's always fun to talk about the epistle of Jacob. But in any case, uh, there were several Jameses, of course, in the New Testament. Brother John, another one. But we side with those scholars that believe that this letter was literally written by the Lord's half-brother, one who did not accept him until after the uh, resurrection, but then emerged to become the leader of the community, of the uh, Christian community in Jerusalem. And I won't go through the whole thing. There's, the epistle could not have been lit, written later than 62 AD and may have been one of the precipitating events in the rebellion that caused, was crushed by Rome in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 68 to 70 AD. Um, there are some people that believe the letter might have been written much earlier than that. In fact, probably approximately at the time of the uh, Acts 15 and the Council in Jerusalem. But there are different views, and each one has its uh, support and implication. And it's written to the 12 tribes. You need to, as we read this letter, let's keep in mind that James was very Jewish. And he's writing to primarily a Jewish community. Christians, yes, but, but the Jewish Christians. That's one of the arguments for it being very, very early in that whole development. And uh, these are the same 12 tribes that the Old Testament talks about, the same 12 tribes that Peter wrote to in his first letter, the same 12 tribes that Paul spoke to in his address before Agrippa in Acts 26. And I think we dismissed in one of our earlier sessions this whole myth that's very popular but a myth of 10 lost tribes. There, are not, there aren't 10 lost tribes, and I won't get into all that here. The book does have 60 imperatives in the 108 verses. But let's not carry away a lot of do's and don'ts. Let's try to see through those as to the real argument, the real perspective that James is uh, painting for us. Now, tonight we're going to take the last half of chapter 2. The whole epistle deals with faith, but he deals with it especially in chapter 2. And faith, of course, is a key doctrine in Christian life. Many people mean many different things about faith. Faith, of course, a sinner is saved by faith. We learn that from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The believer must walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, we learn in Hebrews chapter 11. And in fact, Romans 14, verse 23 says, Whatever we do that's not done of faith is sin. Wow, what is this business of faith? I suspect that if we had a little uh, survey... If we had more time, I'm almost tempted to do that, is to give everybody a scrap of paper and give me a definition of what you think faith is. And I think we'd be surprised. In an audience of this size, we'd probably get an incredible diversity of perspectives as to what do we really mean by faith. And uh, it's tragic that, uh, first of all, one of, the, one of the myths of modern society is that faith is good, as if if you have faith, everything's fine. That misses the point entirely. Faith in what? You know, there's, you often in the popular entertainment, you sort of often get a, they feel that they're reaching some kind of philosophical pinnacle by saying that if you have faith, it's wonderful in a nondescript sense. And of course, that's tragic. But even within the Christian realm, there is an attitude by many that faith is some kind of commitment of belief in spite of evidence. And nothing could be further from the truth. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of convenience. Let me try that on you, because I think that's the way uh, uh, James would describe it. And he's going to develop that as we go get into this now. 
And faith is not a feeling that we work up. Many people feel we need to grow in faith. You know, we somehow, you know, faith is not a feeling we work up. It's a confidence that God's word is true. It's more than just believing it. It's, I mean, it, there's an atmosphere of trust involved in that word confidence. It's confidence that God's worth is true and that acting upon his word will bring a blessing. And that's what it's all about. Now, one of the questions we want to ask ourselves tonight, very basic stuff tonight, is uh, what kind of faith saves a person? What kind of faith saves a person? And is it necessary to do good works in order to be saved? You should gasp in horror. No, that's legalism. Well, let's wait and see. How can a person tell whether or not he's exercising a true saving faith? That's a good question. Anyone that's not uncomfortable now wasn't listening. Now, James is going to focus, we're in about verse 14 on, we'll do the last half of this chapter. James is going to discuss three kinds of faith. And the first one is going to disturb us if you're paying attention. Verse 14, James says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can that faith save him? Or be a little more precise, can that kind of faith save him? That's interesting. You see, there are those who claim they had saving faith, yet did not possess salvation. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> there are people among us, not necessarily here tonight, but among us in the community, that say they have faith, but are lost. Now let me, let's turn to Matthew 7, and let's pick it up about verse 16. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Well, first of all, we're measuring trees how? What's the discriminating thing? By the kind of fruit they bear. Then he goes on. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Then he continues to amplify the amplification of this. Verse 21. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house on a rock, and he goes on to a whole other development. This is a very, very heavy question that, Dave is po- that, uh, uh, that uh, James is posing in verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can that kind of faith save him? And then he goes on to give an example. He's going to actually give three examples, but the first one's anecdotal here. If a brother or a sister, verse 15, be naked and destitute of daily food, and he's going to continue, as a believer, you and I have an obligation to help meet the needs of people. 
And that's something that's so easily uh, shrugged off. That's something so easily deferred to a committee or what have you. We'll talk more about it as we go. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. Paul paints a perspective here that we have an obligation as Christians. We are manifesting, demonstrating, professing the character of God by our conduct. And as we fail to meet obligations to help, we are casting a cloud on the image of God that we are to be witnesses of. But Paul mentions something else in Galatians 6.10. He emphasizes that our obligation is more intense on believers. That's something that seems instinctively right, and yet it's interesting to see that confirmed in the Scripture itself. Another passage that will come to mind is Matthew 25, at the second coming, verse 40. It says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. No, there is an obligation to, to be supportive. Well, in James's example, he points to, in verse 15, a brother or sister naked, destitute of daily food. And then in verse 16, And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things they are needful of the body, what doth it profit? In other words, what he's portraying here is someone has come in that's in need. And we say to them, uh, Good, good, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. What good is that? That's lip service. In other words, We're not feeding them. We're not meeting the need. We're just saying, be warmed and filled, brother. It's a cynical remark, in effect. You understand the cynicism that's portrayed here. It's all lip service. Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which they need for. What doth it profit? James is portraying here people who have the vocabulary, but not the commitment, not the action. People with dead faith substitute words for authenticating deeds. They know the vocabulary. They picked up all the buzzwords, the vocabulary for prayer, for worship, for witnessing, testimonies. Be warmed and filled, brother. Gee, thanks a lot, guy. I'm hungry. Be warmed and filled. 1 John 3, 17 19, But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If you have a brother in need and aren't responsive, how can you say God dwells in you? And then John continues in the first letter. He says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. John himself is making the same argument that James is making in his letter. That words are cheap. But indeed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. And shall assure our hearts before him. Now the, probably the classic example. And you know it's so difficult sometimes. With our most familiar stories. To really remember the point that's being made. All of us are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. Let's refresh it. Let's turn to Luke 10. Let's just take another look at that. It's obviously not a new discovery. It's a, something that we've all taken a look at. But it's always, it's always uh, 
fascinates me how sometimes our most familiar passages become so familiar that we forget the real issue here. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor is thyself. He said to him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, which stripped him of his... By the way, if you've ever been to Jerusalem to Jericho, you know, that's what, uh, half an hour drive? It's 20 miles, something like that? And it's really destitute even today. This desert, open, rolling country. Bandits, all kinds of things, I'm sure, in those days. Maybe even, and maybe today, too. Um, it fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest. A priest, okay. This is a descendant of Aaron. This is a professional religionist, if you will. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Boy, I wonder how many times we've done that. I wonder how many times we've done that when we've seen someone in need and we sort of found a way to sort of avoid a, con- a direct confrontation. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, now this is an interesting selection, kind of most of you realize the Samaritans were regarded they're sort of like they were regarded by the people sort of half Jews when the northern kingdom fell the inhabitants in large measure were transported to other parts of the Assyrian empire and other people other Assyrian captives were tra- you know, they, they had a policy of cross mingling their captives to break down any nationalistic identity with the soil they were raised on so that's where the northern kingdom developed a population that was sort of half Jewish half other things and out of that came the Samaritans. And they were despised by the Jews. So they were, in fact, you remember the woman at the well. When, when Jesus goes through Samaria, that was like regarded to a true, true Jew. That was like foreign country, see? Anyway, here comes one of these despised in their society, a Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, uh, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil, in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. Left his credit card. And on the morrow when he departed, he took two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I'll repay thee. That's a gutsy move. What's his protection against being abused? What's his protection against false billing? I mean, you, know, you, you stop and think about it. That's a, that's a gutsy move. Those days are no different than today. They're people that are unscrupulous. And of course, Jesus raises the question, Now, which one of these three... The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan was the neighbor unto him that fell among thieves. Now this is not an academic parable. It's a parable. These don't have names. When they have names, it's a real story. Here, it's a parable. Okay. I I assume. Verse 37. And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Okay. Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. Commandment for obedience. This isn't an academic intellectual exercise. This isn't defining some doctrine. This is laying out a a pattern of conduct. And that's really what James is going to hammer away. Because getting back to James, any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life 
and some practical results is a false declaration. There are a lot of people around that claim to be Christians that are making, maybe unknowingly, but are making a false declaration. Verse 17, he's going to say this three times in this short passage we're going to look at tonight. He says, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. That is being by itself. James is not drawing a distinction between faith and works. He's saying they're inseparable. Quite the contrary. John Calvin summarized it very eloquently. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. See, we have a tendency in our theology, in our cliches, to see, because we're so, we've, we've gotten so fearful of legalism. Faith and works, you don't get saved by works. It's not that simple, because faith and works, if it's real faith, it'll produce works. That's what Calvin's saying. It's faith alone that justifies. We're justified judicially before God by faith. But we're justified, we justify him by our works before men. Sola fide, only by faith. Yeah, but Calvin says faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. So faith without authenticating actions is vain, is the main burden that James is going to try to hammer away here. It's an interesting, interesting epistle. Uh, I'm so grateful that we chose to really dig into this epistle because I think it's so timely for today. So timely for today. Because I think all of us are victims, in a sense, of perhaps an overemphasis on the one at the expense of the other, when they really need to go together like two sides of the same coin. Let's go to verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. We have an expression in our common language. You know, your actions, actions speak louder than words. Right? That's really what James is saying. James is actually repudiating any separation of faith alone or deeds alone as if they were contradictory. He is going to make the point that mere intellectual assent is inadequate. I think most of us are probably mature enough to realize that just intellectual assent, just belief, is not faith. I may believe that that airplane can fly. That's a different thing than getting into it and flying it. One, one's believing it, one's having faith in it, in a sense, okay? We may know accurately the doctrines of salvation and yet have not submitted ourselves to God. You can intellectually know the doctrines of salvation but not have submit, been submitted to God. And uh, James will warn three times that faith without works is dead. In verse 17, 20, and he'll close the chapter with verse 26. Now, I said he's going to talk about three types of faith. The first kind of faith that he's addressed here we'll call dead faith. You can have faith um, that's dead. You can have faith, or think you have faith, and be unsaved. And that's scary. You know, sometimes we take up topics here and stuff and we sometimes go a little on the fringe or take things that are sort of, there's different views and we'll express both views and move on. We're in some deep, deep stuff here. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but one of the questions is, are you saved? And if so, how do you know? Well, I believe the Word of God. Praise God, that's great. But is there evidence in your life that you are? A little tougher. 
Now, James is going to develop this with a second example. And this, the next example, he deliberately picks one to shock you. And he, he takes the most bizarre example you can imagine. Verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble. Ooh. Are demons real? I think in this audience, and I think most of you are sophisticated enough to recognize they are. One of the great discoveries. It's interesting. 10, 20 years ago, if you had this kind of a discussion in a church, Christian group of Christians, you had an uphill battle talking about demons. and The, the Christian community is very comfortable talking about Jesus Christ, talking about all the, the stuff. But you start talking about Satan as a real person. You start talking about demons, and people get uncomfortable. They sort of in the back, they may acknowledge the vocabulary, but in the back of my mind they say these are maybe idioms for some kind of fuzzy darkness. They don't think of them as a sentient, resourceful, malicious adversary. Today's world, it's, it's interesting, maybe more, maybe more than 10 years, but certainly the last 20 years, say, there's been a whole change in our culture. There was a time on the universities or in the high schools you'd argue about the existence of God. Today, there are many, many uh, uh, debates. Not whether God exists, it's who's going to win. And you start, you start seeing the embodiment of uh, supernatural beings of various kinds that are painted as good guys. It was interesting when you see, just to speak of the entertainment media, uh, in the movie Independence Day, when these, there was this, some kind of you know, interaction with presumably aliens from outer space. And these people crowded on rooftops of buildings, welcoming them, like they're going to be the answer to all our problems. Now, of course, that's just entertainment. It's dealing on some popular myths and whatever. But, but it's interesting how many people today regard the paranormal as intrinsically good. They don't doubt its reality, but they're, they not only acknowledge its reality, they're perfectly willing to take it comfortably as our potentially our friends. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.